morning. I'm Joseph Nemo. Uh, today's reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 32. I read, Therefore I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer walk as Gentiles, as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity, with the desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, and don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for the building up of someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. Don't, give, don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Oh, my goodness. It's so good to be home at Christ Community. It's so good to see you all. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Alex Smith. My wife, Jeannie, and I, we remember the early days of the Shawnee campus, and we want to know that we're deeply invested in you, that we've been praying for you, we rejoice with you, and we grieve with you, and we love you very much. And it's amazing, this is one of our first times being in this building, to see the things that God has been up to through you. And I can't wait to see what God has in store for you in the days to come. Many of you, we've known all of our adult lives, we've lived life together, we've done ministry together, and it's just an amazing opportunity to be able to be with you this morning. All right, enough of the gushy stuff. Who are you? In 2020, Forbes reported that the personality type, you know, personality testing inventory, that the industry was worth $2 billion, and that industry is only projected to grow in the next decade. And what are they selling? the chance to know who you really are. I'm sure many of you who are here this morning, you've taken tests from Myers-Briggs or DISC or any of a number of these other companies. And I'm sure in a room this size, we, some of you would identify yourselves as introverts or extroverts, creatives, critical thinkers. We've got leaders and mobilizers and on and on. You see, in our culture, the appeal of discovering who we really are is powerful. Common in our culture are phrases like, I'm just trying to find myself, or I'm just trying to figure out who I really am. 
And for some of us, we find our identity in our careers. How many of you were asked something like this when you were younger? What do you want to be when you grow up? You see, these are questions of identity. I'm an IT person. I'm a nurse. I'm an accountant. I'm a teacher. I'm a stay-at-home parent, and on and on. How we earn a living and what we become skilled at shapes who we think we are. And our geographical labels matter, too. I'm a Midwesterner. I'm a Chiefs fan. Kansas City barbecue is the best in the world. And perhaps most of all, our relationships form our identity. I'm a parent. I'm a spouse. I'm a grandpa. I'm a son. I'm a neighbor. I'm a friend. These are powerful connections, and they shape our identity. What we do with our lives, how we spend our time, who we spend it with, what we love and are passionate about, these things deeply shape our identity and who we think we are. And this identity shapes how we live. But who are you really? Who's your true self? What's at the core of your identity? And how does that shape your behaviors and habits? How does your identity shape the deepest passions and desires of your heart? You see, who we think we are matters, but it's not always an easy question. And sometimes in life, there are major events that change us and rock us to our core, that make us question and rethink our identity. The loss of a spouse, a new child, chronic illness, losing a job, getting a new job, relocating. These things shape our sense of who we are. And what about your faith? How does your faith shape your identity? I'm guessing, based on our location this morning, that some of you probably identify yourselves as followers of Christ. And that shapes your identity. For others of you, you may be wrestling with what it means to identify yourself as a Christian. And sometimes living in a Christian community is difficult. There can be so much conflict and disappointment, hypocrisy, judgmentalism, and legalism. Sometimes the church doesn't look very much like the loving and forgiving Jesus we claim to follow, and that can cause us to question our identity. Perhaps some of you can relate to this this morning. In my own journey, I've gone through deep and profound seasons of wrestling and questioning what it means to be a follower of Christ. And likewise, I've journeyed with many people who have shared in similar stories, several of which have been a part of Christ's community over the years. And sadly, some of them have walked away from their faith. So how do we become a community that helps each other wrestle with these questions of identity well? How do we become a church that journeys with people who are trying to figure out who they are in Christ? How do we create a faithful community of Christ followers that builds one another up into thoughtful and more mature followers of Jesus? How do we become a church that helps people find their true self in the Messiah? And this, in large part, is what we've been exploring in our series Reconstruction for the last few weeks. As we look to the words of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesian churches for guidance, so this morning, as we continue in chapter 4 of Ephesians, I want to suggest to us that we will find our true self when we begin to live as our new self. Will you please pray with me? God, we come to you this morning with open hands. We ask you to reveal yourself to us through your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you. Amen. All right, so so far in this series, we've discovered that Paul is writing these new Ephesian churches a letter from prison. And he says to them, once you were separate from God and dead in your sins, you were scattered and broken and hopeless. But because of God's great love for us, he has rescued us from our sins through the death of Jesus. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, 
God has given us new resurrection life by grace through faith and sealed us with his own Holy Spirit. And by this one spirit, we now have access to approach the throne room of God as his children. Paul goes on to say that we are chosen and called out to be part of God's new family, a new humanity in Christ. And we are now united together as one body with Christ as our head. No longer will we be separated and divided because of our language, ethnicity, social status, politics, or even our religion. And all of this is leading to the moment where one day all things in heaven and on earth will be brought into unity under the reign of King Jesus. God is bringing about new creation under the rule of King Jesus, and we somehow get to be a part of it. In other words, the death and resurrection and ascension of King Jesus is now creating one new redeemed humanity out of a scattered and fragmented world. And that brings us to chapter 4, which Paul, our Paul, not the Apostle Paul, there's too many Pauls, began for us last week. You see, in the first half of the letter, chapters 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul is reminding the Ephesian churches of who they are in light of what God has been accomplishing in this world through his Messiah. But now in the second half of the letter, chapters 4 through 6, the Apostle Paul is going to explain to us how this new humanity is to live out their sacred and holy calling to pursue a radical unity as a reflection of God's own love. So if you have your Bibles out or your phones out, will you turn with me to chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. Okay, hold on a moment. I want to pause. It's really easy, I think, for us to miss what Paul is doing here. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Who's Paul speaking to? What's a Gentile? It's the word ethnos, as in our, our modern English word ethnic. This is an ethnic category and in Paul's Jewish context, it simply means someone who is not Jewish, someone outside of the Jewish people. But who is Paul talking to here? You can look back just a few verses at the beginning of chapter 3. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, no longer live as the Gentiles do, but they are Gentiles. That would be like me saying to you, no longer live as Midwestern suburban Americans. What? That doesn't make any sense. And here's our first clue to what Paul is doing here in this passage. He's challenging our sense of identity or who we think we are. And that's what Paul has just spent the first three chapters of his letter explaining, that somehow as the result of what happened through the death and resurrection of Jesus, our primary idea of self, our identity, is no longer tied to our national or ethnic categories. Instead, through Christ, we are being made into something else, or what Paul has been referring to as a new body or a new humanity in Christ. In other words, sure, you're a Kansas Cityan. Sure, you're a Chiefs fan. Kansas City barbecue sauce may be coursing through your veins, but that's not fundamentally who you are any longer. You are something completely new. You are part of the new creation, God's new redeeming and renewing work designed to transform this whole world. And as a result, as we are going to find out, that's going to change how we live. So let's continue. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. Okay, if you're anything like me, here's where I tend to start to get defensive. 
I love Paul's writing about what Jesus has accomplished in chapters one through three, but now Paul's starting to sound really preachy and judgmental. Is he really gonna call everyone who's not Jewish futile in their thinking, darkened in their understanding, ignorant and hard-hearted? On top of that, he's about to go on for a bunch of chapters to give us a big list of things to do. Why is Paul so concerned with telling us what to do? Is Paul's Christianity just gonna be a list of rules to keep? What's Paul really getting at here? Remember, Paul is talking about identity. He's saying that this is no longer who you are. Paul's picture of what the new humanity in Christ looks like is inclusive of both Jews and Gentiles, but don't miss this. This inclusivity is a transformational inclusivity. It requires a dying and rising again. For Paul, having been immersed in a Jewish tradition and custom, Gentiles were understood to be morally ignorant of God's commands. They were a people, they weren't a people of the Torah or the Hebrew scriptures that reveal how to be a separate and holy people to God. Paul is not saying here that all Gentiles are intellectually ignorant. Instead, he's saying that left to our own devices, apart from a covenant relationship with God, we end up determining what's right and wrong on our own terms. We decide for ourselves how we want to behave, and as a result, our consciences have become hardened and calloused. It's like visiting someone's home who has three or more cats. You've experienced it too. The house may smell fine to the people that live there, but believe me, there is a smell. You see, often we conveniently find ways to become numb, oblivious, and unaware of our own moral failings. Yet somehow, at the same time, we still seem to be acutely aware of the hypocrisy of everyone else around us. Remember what Paul said in chapter 2, you who are Gentiles by birth, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. So what now? Are we Gentiles supposed to become circumcised Jews and start observing all the commands of the Torah? Not at all. Elsewhere, in places like Galatians 2, Paul says things like, for, though, for through the law, or Torah, I died to the law so that I might live for God. You see, Paul himself, as a Jew, has undergone a radical change of identity. No longer does he see himself primarily as a Jew shaped by ancestry, tradition, and behavior. Instead, he has found his identity as a Messiah person, as a part of the new humanity in Christ. For Paul, the solution is not for Gentiles to become Jews. Rather, instead, both Jew and Gentile are somehow becoming something new in the Messiah. They are becoming Messiah people, or as Paul said in chapter 3, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. There is something new and incredible happening. You see, God did not call the people of Israel to himself just to remain a separate and holy enclave, cut off from the world. No, from the beginning, God promised Abraham that he would bless his family so that they could be a blessing to the whole world. On Mount Sinai, God revealed to Israel that they would become a kingdom of priests. But for whom? They were to be a kingdom of priests for the world. And likewise, at the end of the great scroll of Isaiah, we see a vision of the future where all the nations would come to Jerusalem to worship the one true God. And that is what Paul is trying to explain is happening now through Jesus the Messiah. Through King Jesus, God has begun to bring radical unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. 
And as a result of this new unity, this new family, this new body, this new way of being human is going to begin to live in radically new and transformed ways. Our tough, calloused hearts are being replaced with soft, compassionate hearts that are able to recognize the depths of our own moral shortcomings and failings. In other words, living as our new self in Christ is not just about pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and trying harder. It's not a white-knuckled list of rules you have to keep. No, living as our new self is about that identity change, not behavior modification. Let me say that again. Living as our new self is about identity change, not behavior modification. So Paul goes on, verse 20. But that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Paul is asking them here to remember when they first became followers of Jesus. He's reminding them of when they first heard about this new way of life. And he says to them that they were taught to practice three things. First, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is being corrupted by deceitful desires. Second, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And third, to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. What's Paul getting at here? First, notice the language of taking off and putting on. This is clothing language, literally disrobing. It's like getting home from a hard day's work with filthy clothes covered with muck and grime and putting on fresh, clean garments. My wife works as a paraprofessional in an elementary special needs classroom. And when she gets home from work, often I want to run up and give her a big hug. But usually she stops me and says something like this. If you had any idea of all the gross things I get covered with at work, wiping kiddos' bums and dealing with bodily fluids, you would wait until I showered and changed my clothes first. That's the idea. In fact, it's possible here that Paul is making a reference to the early Christian practice of baptism where they would change out of their old clothes, symbolizing their old way of life, and changing into brand new clean clothes as they passed through the waters of baptism, symbolizing their new resurrected life in Christ. And what are these clothes that Paul is referring to here and says we should take off and put on? It's the old self and the new self. Or some of your translations may say old man or new man. And we don't really use the English word man in this way much nowadays, But what it means is mankind or humanity. Indeed, the word translated self or man here is the word anthropos, as in our English word anthropology. And it means human or humanity. And this is the exact word that Paul used in chapter 2 when he said, God's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, Jew and Gentiles. That's Paul's whole point in the first half of the letter. God is creating a new humanity out of a scattered and fragmented world. Therefore, we are to practice putting off our old humanity, our old way of being human, and to put on our new humanity or our new way of being human. And this begins with our minds being made new as we recognize our identity in Christ. But notice the phrase, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires. Desires. There's a connection here for Paul between our identity and our desires. In his book, You Are What You Love, author James K.A. Smith helps us to make this connection. He says this, Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of of the human person. Discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. 
So discipleship, discipleship is much more a matter of hungering and thirsting than knowing and believing. Here's my point, and don't miss this. It's not enough to merely learn about Jesus and what he has accomplished. We have to rehabituate and reform the desires of our heart by practicing putting off and putting on. You see, living as our new self takes practice. It's the reformation of our desires. No one ever has become healthy merely by learning the benefits of a balanced diet and exercise. You actually have to practice it. I remember when I first got married, and my wife is a runner. Sometimes she'd run 10 or more miles a day. I, on the other hand, was a rather out-of-shape, sedentary sort of guy. I've always struggled with being overweight, and man, do I love pizza. But it became clear to me as a young man that if I was going to be married to Ginny, I was going to have to learn to love running. And at first, it was like torture. I couldn't even run a mile without having to stop and walk for a while. Yet slowly, over time, as I continued to run every day, something really strange began to happen. I actually began to enjoy it. In fact, if I went a few days without exercising, my body would begin to feel yucky and off somehow. My body had learned to desire to run. And that's how our desires work. If you practice eating healthy for long enough, eventually your body will crave a salad, even if, you, um, if you've gone too long without having one. See, we all have desires. We all crave purpose and intimacy, acceptance and love, peace and prosperity. But where do our hearts go to find fulfillment for these desires? It's not just a matter of knowing what's best for us. It requires reshaping our habits and patterns, reforming our loves and passions. For many of us, we spend our whole lives feeding our appetites for material things, for sexual gratification, for power and influence and respect. And often these appetites grow so strong that we don't care who we're hurting or even if we're destroying ourselves in the process. You see, the appetites we feed are the appetites that will grow. And as a result, our lives can leave behind a terrible wreckage of damaged relationships and self-destructive consequences in our pursuit of our own deceitful desires. We all have our secrets that we don't want made public. We've all cut corners and fudged the rules to our own advantage. And we've all done the mental gymnastics to try to justify our own selfish actions while still being deeply critical of others. The truth is that we were all made in the image of God to reflect his love and goodness to the world around us, but something isn't working right in our own hearts and minds. We end up chasing after the fleeting desires which leave us empty and broken and numb. What we need is for our minds and hearts to be made new. Deep down, we all long to be restored to the image bearers of God that we know we were created to be, but we just can't seem to do it on our own. We need help to break the cycle. But the good news is we need not go on living this way. Because of Jesus, our identity has changed and our minds are being made new, and we can now begin to rehabituate and reform the passions and desires in ways that build up the unity of the body of Christ. Paul is not about to give us a list of rules to keep. Instead, and don't miss this, he's showing us a new way to practice being human. He's showing us a way to train our hearts and minds to love what Jesus loves so that we might live in healthy and thriving relationships as the body of Christ. Let's continue. Verse 25. Therefore, Paul says, putting away lying, speak truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Put off falsehood or lying. I don't know about you, but for me, lying is usually a way for me to paint myself 
and a better light were to hide from the reality of what I've done. It's a way of protecting myself from people finding out who I truly am. And to that, Paul just says, tell the truth. You're all part of the same body. What are you hiding from? The only thing we all have in common is that we're all so screwed up Jesus had to die for us. That's kind of the whole deal. We're not doing such a great job on our own. We need Jesus. Why hide from it? Just tell the truth. We have to put off and put on. Then Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the anger go down. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Notice Paul doesn't say here, do not be angry. Here's the reality. If we're living and working together as the body of Christ, we're going to hurt each other's feelings. We're going to say and do the wrong thing. And sometimes we're going to see others in the body of Christ who are badly out of line and perhaps even committing sin and injustice in the community. And to that, anger is the normal and healthy response. But here Paul says, do not let your anger linger and fester, growing into resentment. In the same way that it's wise to go to bed with your oven or your stove left on, don't leave the fire of your anger unattended. We want to be a people who can experience a wide range of emotions in a healthy, mature, and respectful way. Anger can motivate us to great acts of justice and compassion for the good of all. But the new humanity looks like a community that is always moving toward reconciliation and resolution of conflict. That's who we are. Otherwise, we open ourselves up to spiritual attacks that lead to the destruction of relationships. So put it off. Put it on. Verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. The old humanity will do whatever it takes to get more stuff for myself with little or no regard for who it hurts along the way. But the new humanity is more concerned with and more aware of those in need. It's a renewing of our minds as we practice taking off the blinders that are only concerned with what's in it for us. And we begin to look to the needs of the community all around us. It's a taking off and a putting on. Verse 29, and no foul language, or literally here, no rotten talk should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. Now, I don't think Paul is specifically referring here to curse words or dirty jokes, although perhaps you can make an argument for that. Instead, Paul is referring to rotten talk or words that introduce rot and decay into the community. The new humanity doesn't belittle or demean one another. We don't go behind each other's backs. Instead, we encourage and build one another up. It's like when parents say to their kids at the dinner table, did you say that to your little sister to encourage her or to make her feel little? The old self seeks to build ourselves up by tearing others down, but the new humanity nurtures, encourages, and strengthens. Just as God created the world through his words, so too his image bearers build up the body of Christ with their words. Verse 30, and don't grieve the Holy Spirit. You were sealed or marked by him for the day of redemption. Now the phrase, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, is kind of an odd phrase in our modern context, but here's Paul's point. If we are a people marked out by the Holy Spirit who is living and dwelling in our midst, building us up into one body, how does he feel when we actively seek to tear one another down? Well, let me say it another way. Don't break God's heart by being selfish and mean to one another. If we are marked by the Spirit, by his personal presence living in us, 
Think how sad it makes that spirit if we behave in ways that don't reflect the life and love of God. And finally, verse 31. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you, along with malice, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. You see, there's no place in the new humanity for hatred and violence and slander. Instead, we are a people marked by forgiveness. As Christians, we ought not to be known merely for who and what we're angry at. Instead, we are a people marked by a radical and transforming forgiveness because we are people who have been forgiven. Let me speak plainly here, church. Our Facebook and Twitter pages, our office conversations, the discussions around our dinner tables, around the golf course, are they marked by your anger or are they marked by your love and forgiveness? As Christians, are we known for our compassion or are we known for who and what we dislike? Listen, church, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Take that off. Put on the new humanity in Christ that is modeled on the love of Jesus who gave himself for us. Yet let me be clear, forgiveness is not the same thing as excusing sin. Our response to evil and wrongdoing is never to say, don't worry about it, no problem, it's okay. No, we are people who are rooted in truth, yet we choose to forgive anyway. Listen to how C.S. Lewis describes real forgiveness. Real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin, the sin that is left over without any excuse, after all allowances have been made, and seeing it in all of its horror, dirt, meanness, and malice. To excuse is not Christian charity. It's only fairness. To be Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Practicing the new humanity means acknowledging the wrongdoing and choosing to forgive anyway because Jesus forgives us. And that is why Paul ends this list with a reminder of the love of Christ, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Did you catch it? The repeated word three times? Dearly loved children, walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us. It's not about do's and don'ts. It's about finding radical unity as we learn to place ourselves in the story of Jesus' sacrificial love. We're a people of love, not because we have to, but because we were loved. That's our identity. We were loved sacrificially even to the point of dying on a cross. And so now we imitate the love of Christ back out into this messed up world so that we can demonstrate what this radical new way of being human looks like. In other words, living as our new self imitates the story of the cross because that's who we are. Let me give you a simple example of what I've been trying to say this morning. If you're a parent, especially if you have multiple kids, perhaps you can relate to this. How many times as a parent have you had to say things like, don't hit your sister, Give your brother back his toy. Don't scream in the car. Please don't lie to me. Please just love each other. Doesn't that get old? Now, honestly, how many of you have ever found yourself saying something like this to your kids? In this family, we don't hit each other. We're not the kind of family that lies to one another. In this house, we don't scream at each other. 
In our family, we stick together, encourage one another, and love each other. What's the difference? The first is an example of do's and don'ts, but the second example affects our identity. These are the defining values of our house. As a part of the new humanity in Christ, this is who we are. So try hearing Paul's words like this. Here at Christ's community, we seek to speak truth to one another. Here in our church, we seek to do anger well, to be angry about what angers God, but not to become bitter. We don't hold grudges. We always seek reconciliation. Here at our church, we value hard work for the benefit of the community, not just our own personal gain. We value not destroying each other with our words. We want to be a place of encouragement and building up. Here in this church, we want to be a people defined by our compassion, our love, and our forgiveness because we know that we've messed up time and time again, but Christ loved us and died for us anyway. We are committed to forgiving each other because God forgave us. That's just who we are, church. It's our identity. It's baked into our DNA. These are our family's defining values. We want to be like Jesus. Don't you want to be part of a church family like that? But here's the thing. We often fail at living up to this. Often, both corporately and individually, we live much more like our old selves than our new selves. And as a result, we end up doing damage to ourselves and the community around us. We can even contribute to the destruction of fellow believers' faith in the community. But take heart, church. You are being made new in Jesus. If any of you are in Christ, then the new creation has begun. Living as our new self is about identity change, not just behavior modification. It takes practice as our loves and our passions and desires are being remade in the likeness of Christ. And as we practice living as the new humanity, we will go on to begin to find ourselves more and more imitating the story of the cross as our community grows in the self-sacrificial love of Jesus. And more and more we will find our true selves when we begin to live as our new self. So what's your next step this morning? How will you begin to practice living into your new identity? How will you begin to put off and to put on? Perhaps you need to come clean with someone in your life and just tell the truth. Perhaps you need to take a long, hard look at your relationship with anger. Who are you angry at and why? Perhaps you need to reevaluate how you spend your resources. Who is your money for? And what about your words? Are they building others up or tearing them down? Perhaps you need to start with the practice of silence and listening rather than speaking. Let me give you a really simple tool. Perhaps this week you can try slowing down and quietly counting to 10 to yourself rather than immediately responding in a conversation. And lastly, perhaps there's someone in your life this morning that you need to forgive because Jesus has forgiven you. Here in a little while, we're going to participate in communion together. But before you do, will you intentionally take a moment and really stop and reflect? What next step of obedience are you being called to? What do you need to put off and what do you need to put on so that the body of Christ can be built up? But remember, you are dearly loved children, so walk in love because Christ loved you and gave himself for you. Will you please pray with me? Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on us sinners. Thank you for making us new. God, help us to live into the identity you are forming us into. 
Help us to set aside and leave behind those old habits and practices that marked our old self. Be with us and grant us mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.